The title of my sermon today is Do Not Fear What You Are About to Suffer. And our text that we're going to start with, we're actually going to look at quite a number of texts this morning about suffering and persecution, uh, but we're going to start with Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. So if you have a Bible or uh, if you'd like to look on the screen, please follow along with me. Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. My purpose today is threefold. First, I want us to properly understand persecution. I'm not interested in being sensational, uh, but I'm interested in us taking the words of Scripture seriously And I'm interested in approaching persecution soberly and deliberately. Uh, As I was preparing this sermon, I I was thinking actually of the words of a man who, uh, of the words of the vows to be married, right? It says that marriage is to be approached soberly and deliberately, right? And I'm not saying that getting married is the same as being persecuted, but... uh, (laughs) But it's just, the point is, you need to approach it soberly and deliberately. <clears throat> the passage we just read informs Christians that they are about to suffer, and some of it will come from the very Jews who should have received Christ, Christ as the Messiah. It says some of them will be thrown in jail. Some of the Christians will be thrown in jail. So we need to, we need to recognize that this is a reality. Second, I want to consider a number of bad ways to respond to persecution. There are lots of them, and in this passage it mentions, mentions one bad way, and that is to respond with fear and faithlessness. <clears throat> Third, I want to explain how, how we should respond. And before, before anything else, I'll, I'll mention a number of ways that we should respond, but before anything else, the first thing that guides our response to persecution in this life is to keep our eyes fixed on the promises of the next life, which he mentions here in this passage. So first, let's talk about what persecution is. And the first thing to to understand about persecution is that there is no persecution without conflict. It's one of those things that's almost too obvious to say, but it, it needs saying. Jesus promised his disciples that they would be persecuted, and so he sent his disciples out to preach, and he told them that everyone would hate them because of his name. Even members of their own household would be counted as enemies. But being persecuted isn't the same as sticking out or being different. Uh, I started to stick out back in college when, I, when my, I realized that I was losing my hair, that I was going bald, Right? That's not the same as being persecuted. I remember sticking out when I lived in the Congo and then later in the Ivory Coast because of the color of my skin. It was different than anybody around me. But it's not the same as um, being persecuted. 
Today, we, uh, many of us glory in feeling alienated from other people. We're not like them, and that's actually a good thing. It's like a badge of honor to be different, um, to be a victim. But just because you're different and because people have noticed that you're different doesn't mean that you're being persecuted, okay? That's the, that's the first thing. Now, another uh, important point is, is brought out by this, asking this question. Is it persecution when the civil magistrate punishes a criminal? No, it's not persecution when the civil magistrate punishes a criminal. It is just for a criminal to pay a penalty that is commensurate with his crime. When you suffer justly, you're not being persecuted. <clears throat> this is a very important point because one man's freedom fighter is another man's rebel, right? And so when a homosexual or a pedophile or a thief claims that he's being persecuted, the appropriate, first, the appropriate first question is, says who? Right? It's an appeal to an, a higher authority. It's an appeal to a higher law to say that you're being persecuted. <clears throat> Now, that's all to say that Christians shouldn't be cowed when it is claimed that their talk of sin and hell and the judgment to come is persecution of others. It's not. It's not persecution to speak to someone about sin and judgment. Now, there is such a thing as real persecution, and believe it or not, there is actually even persecution in this country towards Christians. Uh, scripture promises that this will be the case, in, uh, for instance, in 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 12, it says, All who desire to live godly in Christ, in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. And in 1 Peter 4, 4, it says that the pagans are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. That is to say, uh, excess or self-indulgence, lust. And some of you, I, I'm sure, have had that experience, particularly if you've attended college, Right? You had friends who were surprised that you didn't run into the same sins that they gave themselves to wholeheartedly. So, um, we shouldn't be surprised by this fact. And it's, it's interesting that Scripture says that the pagans are the ones who are going to be surprised, but so often it's the Christians who are surprised by the pagans' response. We have Scripture. We should know better. We should expect that this uh, difference will occur. Now, about a year ago now, we uh, invited uh, Pastor Doug Wilson to give a series of lectures on campus called Sexual by Design. And, of course, the topic was God's, crea uh, God's creation of sexuality, manhood and womanhood, uh, God's order of creation in that regard. And, of course, uh, for those of you who were there, I, I, I remember the feeling in the room, you know, the anger and the hatred was very palpable. Sexuality is a very hot topic all throughout our culture, no less on campus of Indiana University. And uh, so this lecture series very nearly led to an angry mob. In fact, there were, I don't know how many policemen. Does anyone remember how many policemen were there? 22 policemen there, okay? 22 policemen there to make sure that it didn't turn into an angry mob. <clears throat> now, Pastor Wilson is not a fire breather. I don't know, just in case any of you are worried. Um, it's not because Pastor Wilson was, uh, was uh, Westboro Baptist Church, okay? Um, they were there to keep the peace, however. Now, 
why were those officers there? For a, a campus that prides itself on tolerance and love and acceptance and all these things, why were those officers there? What were they doing there? They weren't there because they were interested necessarily in what Pastor Wilson had to say. They weren't, you know, it was Friday night. I'm sure they could have thought of other things to do on Friday night. Um, but they were there because there was a conflict. And they didn't want things to get out of hand. And my point in bringing up the Doug Wilson lectures is to, just to say this. If we say what the Bible says about any hot-button topic in our culture today, then there will be conflict between the world and the church. Okay? There is no truce between the city of God and the city of man. There's never been any truce between the city of God and the city of man, between the church and the world. If the church, or rather, if the world does not persecute the church, it is either because it has corrupted her so far that her testimony does not seriously interfere with its more refined indulgences, or because it regards her as too powerless to be worthy of her notice. If the church, in other words, is not at the center of conflict, then it means that the church is either corrupt or impotent. Without conflict, there is no persecution, and without persecution, there is no true church. Now, in case you think that I'm about to launch into a tirade about all the nasty people out there and our responsibility to engage in conflict out there, I want to, to rein you back in and tell you that that's not what I'm going to do. Let judgment begin with the house of God. If it's true that a faithful church will always be in the middle of conflict and therefore persecution, then that faithfulness must begin in the home. It's no good in making a big show of being faithful to God out there if we're filled with every kind of rebellion and evil here at home. No, the conflict begins at home. Scripture is a hammer, but it's no good taking it out into the world if, we haven't, if it hasn't done its work on our hearts first. We shouldn't forget Chesterton's famous answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? His answer, I am, right? In Matthew 10, Jesus sent his disciples out to their, to their own people first. He said, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter the city, any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's a principle here. We don't deal with the people out there who have never heard of the word of God first, we deal with the people here first. The time of the expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ among the Gentiles would come later. For now, the disciples were to go to the Jews. Now, you've heard many times, if you've been here any, any length of time, that the Christian life is a life of repentance. And for, so for us to live together as Christians, love must cover over a multitude of sins. There must be, God's Holy Spirit must be here as we work together, sinning against each other, asking for forgiveness, confronting one another, again, asking for forgiveness, asking for forgiveness again, asking for forgiveness again. The, the, uh, the work of God's Scripture and Word on our hearts to soften us is a process that must happen here. And I don't want you to mistake my meaning. Of course, of course I'm, I'm going to get to going out into the world 
more directly in a minute. But my, my point in, in talking about the church in particular is that the dividing line, the line of conflict, the line that will lead to persecution, begins here. Okay? When someone hardens themselves against correction or reproof, it's not like they want to stop calling themselves a Christian. Right? A man who wants to divorce his wife and abandon his children doesn't necessarily want to stop calling himself a Christian. A wife who is rebellious and angry and bitter towards her husband and doesn't want to let go of that anger and bitterness doesn't want to necessarily stop calling herself a Christian. A college student who wants to date a non-Christian and or perhaps be sexually intimate before marriage wants to do those things and continue to call himself a Christian. And so this is... John's meaning when he refers to the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus sent his disciples out to the Jews, and it was of them, their own people by flesh and blood, who he promised would put them on trial and scourge them in their synagogues. Jesus promised the children would rise up against their very parents and have them put to death. The most sacred, intimate, familial relations would be violated. It would be the source of persecution. So my first point is persecution begins, just like conflict, persecution will begin in, in the home, at the church. If you're not willing to deal with conflict here, you won't be willing to deal with conflict anywhere else. As it says in 1 Peter 4, for it, is time, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So if you're committed to living a life of repentance amongst your family, your church family, and being willing to be told that you need to change, that you need to repent, that, that perhaps you've sinned in this way or that. In other words, if you have a tender conscience and, and your tender heart and you're teachable and willing to grow, what forms of uh, persecution will you encounter, right? What, what does persecution in some practical ways look like? Well, first, persecution means that you'll be accused of evil. And this is something that uh, I want to warn you about because it's so often that we're surprised by this. It's like we're surprised that we are accused of evil. But this is explicitly what Jesus says in Matthew 10. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? The response to Jesus was never neutral, and the Jewish leaders in particular hated him and said that he, his father was the devil. And so, of course, this is a classic calling evil good and good evil, right? If you've been a... If you, uh, or have ever been a, a Christian in public on the campus of Indiana University, you will have experienced being called a child of the devil. Now, they're not going to say that, those words exactly, but that's what they mean. You know, it's the same, it's, it's analogous. Now, other forms of suffering in this country are more rare, but we need to consider them and you need to ask yourself, are you willing to, to undergo them? Because we recognize that they're increasingly likely, right? So what are those types of things? Well, potentially jail time. You know, are you willing 
to go to jail for something that you say on campus or a pastor, for me, you know, that I say in a pulpit um, or at work. What about, here's another one, what about are you willing to maybe lose a job or to be passed over for a job or a, or a promotion uh, because, of, because of your testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to lose esteem in the eyes of others? Are you willing to not be the nice guy? These, you know, when, when you list these kinds of things, it, there's a temptation to, to despise them because they're, they're rather small when you put them in comparison to what the church has suffered in, in ages past. But we shouldn't despise them. God has called us to be faithful in these little things. And the truth is, we're not faithful in these little things. And, and so we need to be. God calls us to be faithful in, in testifying to Jesus Christ, even when we know people won't think we're the nice guy anymore. Now, so that's a little, that's a little background about persecution in general. We have to remember that it begins in the, in the household of God, that you can't have persecution without conflict, and that it will, that it will take the forms of... Uh, those call, people calling you evil and possibly uh, getting passed over and so forth, the other examples I mentioned. Now let's talk about the wrong ways to handle persecution, to deal with persecution. The first wrong way is, of course, to avoid all conflict. This is, uh, this is a uh, favorite, right? If you ignore the fact that there is a conflict that altogether... You can act like it's not even there. You know, you have a friend, for instance, that you know is dating a non-Christian, but it just never seems to come up in conversation. Or perhaps you manage to go through Indiana University without anybody even finding out that you're a Christian. You know, your church is having an event that you might want to invite your coworkers or your classmates to, but you choose not to because you know that something might be said that might cause tension in your relationship. Uh, if you remember the classic uh, Faulty Towers skit, don't mention the war, right? Um, that, this, is our, this is our method. We try not to mention the very thing we know is going to cause conflict. And we know where it is. because we're, I, I know that we know where it is because we're very good at avoiding it, right? It's, it's, a, it's a tell. But, brothers and sisters, where there is no conflict, there is no faithful church. Okay? So we cannot avoid conflict. Another way that we, hand, wrong way to handle persecution is to simply say, well, that's not my battle to fight. It's, a, it's a kind of a subset of avoiding conflict. We can convince ourselves that there, there are these particular battles that are good for other Christians to fight, but not us, not me. A good example of this is for people to tell themselves that it's good that people go down to Planned Parenthood and oppose abortion, perhaps, but not me, not our church, right? This is not something that, uh, that we have to do. Uh, it's good for somebody, maybe you think this is true, but it's good for somebody to oppose Mayor Cruzan when he uh, violates the laws that he was sworn to uphold 
and Mary's, a sodomite couple, but not me, you know, it's not my job to do that. It's not my church's job to do that. We come up with ways to dodge responsibility that is, in fact, ours. We say it's somebody else's. We give it to somebody else. So that's another way to avoid conflict. Another bad way to deal with persecution is to actually make a deal with the devil. And this often happens after the first, you know, somebody stumbles into persecution perhaps. They said something and they get the first, uh, they get the first artillery fire back. They get the first static and they realize, whoa, I just stepped into something I didn't realize was going on. It's the tendency, uh, it's a tendency to, to say, okay, well, now I realize how far I can go and how far I can't go. And this is actually very common uh, for conservative Christians to make these deals. Uh, we, we like to circle the wagons, to retreat to the bunker, and we say, okay, Lord, we, will, uh, we are going to be faithful. Let's say we'll even be faithful out there. You know, we'll go to Planned Parenthood or we'll speak up, we'll write letters to the editor or something like that. But I won't speak about the sin and the... Uh, the sin in my own home because I'm too afraid of losing my children or uh, I won't speak about sin and righteousness with my husband because he might decide to leave me because he doesn't want to live with a Christian. Um, we make these deals that where we understand I can go this far and no further. But brothers and sisters, this is, this is not faithfulness. In Revelation 3, the Apostle John speaks about this kind of a Christian and this kind of a church and says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is the kind of Christian that that makes a deal and takes on the temperature of of the room around him. Two more bad ways of dealing with persecution despair. There are many Christians who despair of having any impact on the world around us. We have made our peace with the fact that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. We have no faith that a little mustard seed or the tiny amount of leaven can leaven the whole dough the whole, uh, or, or could sprout into a, a large tree. And so we've given up. We're not willing to engage in the fight, and we're, and we're given over to despair. And finally, the last bad way to deal with persecution is to, is to say that every time I suffer, it's because I'm being persecuted, right? This is the, the response of someone who's proud and uh, self-absorbed, right? There is such a thing as being a jerk, and there is such a thing as suffering justly for your sins, First uh, Peter 4 says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. If you suffer because of your sin, your punishment is just. So just because you are undergoing th- th- uh, something uncomfortable doesn't mean that you're being persecuted. So what is then the right way to respond to persecution? Well, I mentioned at the beginning that under 
the bedrock of any correct way to respond to persecution, in fact, the only way that you'll be willing to undergo persecution is for you to recognize that this is not your home. God is in heaven, and the judgment will happen. And as I was thinking about this, I realized that this this will not be true unless the promises of the gospel are sweet to you. If you, haven't, if you don't know your sin and you don't know how desperately you need God's grace and forgiveness and mercy, then His promises, heaven, will not be sweet to you. Because those who know their sin and fight against it on a daily basis, struggle with it in themselves and see it around them and struggle with it and the, the, its effects from other people, will long for heaven. Matthew 10 Jesus is speaking again, and he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And again, our passage that we started with in Revelation 2, it says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. And then in 11, uh, or rather 10 and 11, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. There is no reason to undergo persecution at all if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. But Christ did rise from the dead, and this hope is not in vain. I love the words of the last two verses of the hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? It says, Thy saints in all this glorious war shall conquer, though they die. They view the triumph from afar and seize it with their eye. When that illustrious day shall rise and all thine armies shine, in robes of victory through the skies, the glory shall be thine. This is our hope, and nothing, uh, and nothing about being willing to undergo persecution makes sense unless you hold tight to that hope. The second good response is to remember that we are the church militant. Scripture teaches that we are in the midst of the war, and that, and that war is not over yet. Ephesians 6 tells us, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. When Jesus was being questioned before Pilate, he asked him if, if is his, uh, he said that his kingdom, Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. Because of that, we do not pick up physical weapons. Instead, our job is to put on the full armor of God and to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Imagine two men, two soldiers, uh, in a battle or in a war, and they're both lying next to each other. One is courageous and one is humble. Or rather, one is courageous and one is uh, a coward. Couldn't think of the word. One is brave and one is a coward. And the brave one decides to shoot at the enemy. 
And so then, what do you expect is going to happen? The enemy is going to shoot back. All of a sudden, the coward starts to say, stop that. You're making things worse. You're bringing it upon yourself unnecessarily. Right? This is what the coward is going to say. And, and I, I give that example because there's, as I've thought about this, there's no way for Christians to be on the receiving end of persecution without the potential for there to be an accusation lodged at them that you're just out seeking persecution. You're just out looking for a fight. Well, how do you answer that? How does the, how does the soldier who is in the war, in the middle of a battle, who, makes, who fires, gets his gun out, and actually acts like a soldier, answer the, the response that he's just looking for a fight? He's in the middle of a war. It's already there, right? So my point is, uh, there is no demilitarized zone. We are in the middle of a fight. We're in the middle of a battle. And there is no area in this world where Jesus Christ does not have claim, right? Where the world is always trying to make a deal with, with the church of Jesus Christ. You can go here, you can talk about this, but the, you, can't, you can't do this. You can't, you can't talk about manhood and womanhood, for instance. You can talk about all you want about the Trinity or, or something like that. Um, you can have your theological discussions, but don't tell me that I need to submit to my husband. Or don't tell me that children need to submit to their parents. Right? There's all these places where we want to have demilitarized zones, but it simply doesn't exist. So remember that you are the church militant. And third way to respond is to remember the words of Jesus in chapter, Matthew chapter 10. He said that he was sending his disciples out as sheep in the midst of wolves... And he told his disciples to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Now Calvin's comment on this made me smile a little bit because he said uh, that a snake knows that it's hated, right? And so therefore, uh, he carefully avoids anything that's hostile to him. The, his point, though, is that a Christian uh, is not to rush foolishly into danger. This is uh, what I said at the beginning, sober soberly and deliberately, all right? But in case those of you, in case we are tempted to build a fortress and, and around ourselves and avoid any kind of conflict or any kind of difficulty, Jesus also reminds us that we will be like sheep among wolves and that we, will, we should not only be shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves, right? A dove just is flying along, thinking he's perfectly fine, and all of a sudden, pow, some bird of prey comes along and gets him, right? A sheep before a wolf will be devoured, will suffer. This is uh, what Jesus says to his disciples. And so we have to keep in mind that we're not to simply be protective. Even though we're to be shrewd, but we're not to be simply self-protective. We're supposed to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Finally, the last important point, important way to respond to persecution is to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Christians should have thick skins and tender hearts. Okay? Thick skins and tender hearts. We should be able to take persecution when it comes, but that doesn't mean we should go grow hard and, and self-protective. We need to love our enemies. The only thing that separates us from the world is the grace of God. And that's not something we've done. That's God's mercy to us. So it's our privilege to hold out that grace to the world. And we must continue to do it on campus of Indiana University, at your work, wherever it is. If we really do that, if we hold out the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ to, to men and women who really are sinners and given over to evil, then you can be sure that persecution will come. But the joy will be unspeakable. So this week, let's go and do it, come what may. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray that we would have thick skins and tender hearts, that that persecution would not drive us to be self-protective, but that we would remember your mercy and grace to us, and we would go out into the world with that very grace uh, for the world, Father. Please give us courage and faith to do that this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.